Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. So if we examine the ways that the great sages of history have attempted to teach that which cannot be taught, which is the truth of non-duality, the further back we go, we see that the method was the most simple possible. Traditionally, the first yogi, who was a, an avatar of Shiva named Dakshinamurti, was uh, the great teacher of yoga who said absolutely nothing. Therefore, we have no teachings by him. He taught completely in silence. And yet, <clears throat> that silence, because of the state of consciousness that he was in, resulted in a direct transmission of the truth, energetically, rather than cognitively. As time went on, not only were there fewer sages who could transmit that way, but there were far fewer students who could receive or even understand the significance of silence. And therefore, that mode of teaching became much less in use although it remains the core of any authentic teaching of non-duality. The second method is to give very concrete and brief instructions as to how to do atma-vichara or how to do zen or how to do whatever is the name of the practice but the practice, the sadhana, if it is a teaching of non-duality is always ultimately going to be the same and that instruction amounts to discovering the truth of the answer to the question, who am I? What is the I? What is the nature of being or self or mind or Buddha or whatever term is used to signify ultimate reality? 
but there will be very simple instructions given. And those instructions, for the most part, people will be unable to follow. Because they will no longer have the ability to silence the mind. So then the teachers went to an attempt to make it more real for people by developing elaborate descriptions of ultimate reality. Beginning with simple mantras like it's Satchitananda, but then going on to all of the various, let's say, noumena that arise and borderline phenomena that arise as one enters into the transcendent state of being and leaves the ego behind. The, the nature of that unlimited consciousness as it is described, if it is described accurately, the terms of description itself, if people can get it, can help them sink into that state. And so there would be terms that would range from peace and serenity to ecstatic love, joy, bliss, clarity, intelligence, stability, changelessness. All of these terms that we're used to would be given as a description of the aim uh, to, uh, to arrive at, but as time went on, people were unable to reach that state even with a clear description of what it is like. And any description can only vaguely describe what it is like because it is not like anything and it is indescribable. But terms that can at least give one a sense of uh, what one is letting go of, what remains when the illusion is peeled away, can help one to stabilize, at least temporarily, in such a consciousness. Well, when that stopped working, Then they, the sages, developed maps of consciousness, of the spectrum of consciousness, so that you could know where you were on that spectrum in relation to ultimate reality or the highest level of the spectrum. So the Kundalini map is the essential 
uh, map, but variations of that were developed. Kabbalah has its own map using the Sefirot, etc. And, uh, and the, uh, the Muslims have their, their own maps, uh, but they all correspond pretty much to the, the same understanding of the developmental stages of psychological and spiritual maturation that one must go through in order to be able to let go of the ego. And so the map can help one to locate where one is resonating and what needs to happen in order to take the steps to get deeper into consciousness. But the map is not the territory. And so you can become very intelligently familiar with the map and still have no direct realization. But nonetheless, it's useful if one uh, seriously reflects upon where their consciousness is stuck on the way toward realization of the self and is determined to get unstuck. The determination is the key. When the intellectual mapping was no longer of any avail, then the teachers simply began to offer guided meditations to help bring a person through the entrainment of consciousness by the gradual increase of time that one is kept in silence, but because of the guiding process, the voice of the guide becomes as if an auxiliary ego that takes over the job of mental chatter so that the ego mind can go off duty for a while and pay attention to the thoughts that the guider is offering and relax into the waiting for the next phrase to come and in the meantime, allowing oneself to be in silence for longer and longer periods, knowing that at least the silence will come to an end and one can tolerate it. And one gradually acclimates oneself to being able to bear more and more silence in the service of reaching a deeper level of peace. But gradually, even guided meditations end up not working. People fall asleep even in the meditations that are guided, and their mind still finds ways to wander even uh, in these kinds of processes. And so uh, the, uh, the attempt to, uh, to create a, a kind of artificial uh, meditative imperience through guidance of that nature can result only in a very temporary gain, as everyone knows. But at least it can produce uh, perhaps enough serenity that there is an incentive 
to go deeper and sustain the uh, silence longer. And when that stopped working, the, they decided, well, what we need is to uh, exhort people to recommend strongly that people become devoted to God, to the love of God, and to a life of virtue and dharma, so they could clear away some of the garbage in the mind, some of the unnecessary karmic suffering. And the more one's life became devoted to reaching higher consciousness, and one in a very regular and self-regimented way uh, began to apply consistently these principles of psycho-spiritual development in one's uh, plan of life, uh, the more that one gradually reached a point where the consciousness was ready, ripened, and willing to drop the ego identity to discover the infinite and uncreated self and uh, to, uh, to let all of the illusion fall away. <clears throat> but gradually, even the exhortation to virtue and dharma became useless because a social system was created in which the opposite was exhorted upon one when people became indoctrinated to live for pleasure, for money, for immediate gratification, and for a, a dumbed down version of consciousness that uh, was not interested in these subtleties or ascetic practices or, uh, or even having the patience that it takes to develop a meditative practice in an authentic way. And so then, finally, <coughs> the last means was that of deconstruction of the ego so that one could at least take apart the fantasies, the illusions, the fictional nature of the ego, its uh, self-contradictions, to show its uh, addiction to uh, self-defeating tendencies and projections, and its unwillingness to live in truth. And by deconstructing it, one could understand the logic of why it was built, what it was geared to defend against in an unhealthy family system, what traumas it was reacting to, 
and why the illusions that create fear and suffering and hatred and fury and self-hatred and self-disgust and all of these other egoic uh, negative feeling states that prevent one from meditating, why they are there and why they are no longer relevant because they were part of an earlier phase of psycho-spiritual development that one is now not only free to abandon, but one is obligated toward oneself and one's potentialities to drop the, the shell of the ego that was intended only for survival through childhood. And just because our society doesn't offer rites of passage in which the ego dies and one enters real adulthood doesn't mean that one cannot do that on one's own if one has the uh, yearning to do it. The problem is, even in deconstructing the ego, uh, many of those who are having their egos deconstructed feel attacked by that and uh, have a distrust of the deconstructors and are terrified that they're going to be exploited and become dependent and uh, lose their weapons and their power to defend their, their stability or hold on to whatever they are using for their uh, sources of uh, emotional support whether it's the family system, the family money, the family this or that, uh, or whether it's uh, the, the signifiers of security that come from sex or drugs or music or all of the other ways that people prop up the ego. So even the deconstruction results in a backlash of undeconstructable egos that refuse to uh, go through the meat grinder and uh, hold on to their precious delusions upon which the ego is based even though they're the cause of suffering. And of course these include the romantic delusions and the delusions of uh, imaginary forms of spirituality and, uh, and various other uh, delusions that the loss of which creates sadness and despair and hopelessness rather than freedom and bliss. And so uh, we have arrived at a very difficult situation for anybody wanting to teach what cannot be taught. <laughs> Not that I'm asking for pity, but... Uh, uh, we're all in this together, and it's a difficult situation because the ego, no matter how much it wants to escape its own delusional nature, and it knows, even in the midst of its delusions, that it's delusional, but it cannot escape because it cannot imagine not being an I-thought. It is so attached to that thought as if that is its reality. It is so lost in the field of representation that it has no sense of what it means to be real. The real has been lost.
and therefore the mode of consciousness that is normal, quote unquote, for the ego, is the imaginary register of consciousness. And all it can do is uh, look for images of uh, security and safety and empowerment and enlightenment or whatever. But all of those are false. So, uh, the bottom line is, there's no way out of the trap of getting out of the ego. And the only hope there is, is for you to realize that the ego never actually existed at all. So, the only way to escape the problem of the ego, at least in my humble opinion, is to recognize that not only is the ego a tapestry of fantasies, fictions that are both self-created and projected into one, and, and uh, family systems that one is told to imitate and to be indoctrinated into, and social systems and religious systems, etc. But um, not only is the, the ego unreal, but the world itself is unreal. And, and I think it's this that may be the way out for scientifically minded egos. So even scientists admit that the world is miraculous. It cannot be explained. Even if they try to explain it with the Big Bang, they can't explain how did that little singularity get there that went bang. Uh, uh, they, the whole uh, universe is unexplainable by science. And it's hopelessly unexplainable by science. Uh, the world should not be, and, and philosophers are always asking, why is there something rather than nothing? <clears throat> well, who says there's something rather than nothing? Only the illusion of the something is saying that. But in any case, the world uh, is an unexplainable miracle, and I think we need to, to accept that. Because the scientific attitude is to say, oh, no, it's a product of cause and effect, and we can uh, you know, create the formulas and the mathematics, and uh, we, can, uh, we can recreate the entire universe and, uh, and produce copies of it, etc. But it's not the case. Whoever thought this universe into being is not anyone in this room, uh, or in MIT or Harvard or uh, anywhere else. So let's get very clear that if we're dealing with an intelligence that has brought this uh, universe into being, it's, a, uh, it's an intelligence that you want to reach. But the world itself can't be explained without that intelligence. And as the Buddhists have been telling us for thousands of years, the world is impermanent. Things change, nothing remains the same from nanosecond to nanosecond. And so therefore, uh, if you're believing in any world, whatever world you happen to be believing is already gone 
before the belief can even be formulated in your mind. You can't step in the same river twice, as Heraclitus said a long time ago. In fact, you can't even step into it once. Uh, the river is changing even while you're stepping, and the you that's stepping is losing cells uh, as you step, and uh, nothing is remaining the same from one moment to the next. So there is no world in the sense that it's a flux. And because it's a flux, you who are in the flux cannot know where this river of time is going to take you. The flux is unknowable. And the world cannot, uh, or anyone in the world, find their way back to the origin of this river of time. It is without beginning, and it, no end can be seen. Ends of civilizations and planets can be seen, but no end uh, is in sight. But whatever is, is impermanent, cannot be defined, cannot be said, oh, this is uh, real, this is true, of anything that happens or appears within the world. All of that is changing. And so we cannot really say that there is a world. There is something in progress, but it is nothing that is real at any moment, nor is time real. Okay, so the latest scientific theories have agreed that not only is uh, time not real, but matter is not real. They used to think that the world was made of particles or uh, particles of particles. And now uh, quantum physics has destroyed that and, uh, and turned to energy as, as the source. But energy itself turns into being nothing more than information. But information is very interesting because you need a consciousness to interpret the information. And it's not the information you're reading in a book, it's the information that is coming not only to the senses, but coming to levels of consciousness that are beyond uh, that which, is, uh, which pertains to the ego. And, and so there are waves, vibrational frequencies that are in the air. We're not aware of them. Uh, radio waves, if we had a radio, we could turn it on and be aware of them. But otherwise, you're probably not able to pick them up. There's all kinds of vibrations and phenomena that you're not able to receive. And the more psychologically and spiritually sensitive you become, the more you're able to perceive that there are non-physical entities and presences in the space that uh, others who are at a denser level of consciousness cannot perceive. And so as we grow into higher levels of interpreting this subtler and subtler information that we are receiving, the nature of what we consider the world to be changes, and changes radically. Uh, and so we cannot say that any world that we believe in exists, because the moment you get more information about higher dimensions of that reality, the more that that uh, picture of the world is going to change. Moreover, those who have 
really reflected deeply upon the nature of the world, recognized that you're only aware of the world because the world or any phenomenon that arises that you consider part of the world is only an appearance in consciousness. As an appearance, it is not really separate from consciousness. So we cannot say that there is a world outside of your consciousness. This was the whole uh, discovery of Immanuel Kant and, and those who have followed in attempting to find a way out of the situation. But your consciousness can only perceive itself, whatever is within its range. It cannot know anything outside of its perception which is why uh, Kant said you cannot know the ding on sich, the thing in itself. All you can know is your sensory perception of what you're calling a thing, what it actually is, or how it would appear to someone with different senses, with different sensitivities, uh, would be maybe something totally different or nothing, uh, because uh, a different consciousness would simply perceive a different sort of world, or no world. But because the world is only an appearance in consciousness and your consciousness is always producing new thoughts, new interpretations that you cannot predict in advance, you cannot say what the world is or is going to be at any given moment. And then you have to deal with the fact Not only is the world unexplainable, but consciousness is unexplainable. Science certainly cannot explain consciousness and uh, really hasn't even tried very hard except to try to convince people to accept that it's simply brain activity. But anyone who's done any work with those who've had out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and other paranormal sensitivities uh, knows that consciousness cannot be a function of the brain, even though the brain may be a transducer of consciousness. It may receive it and translate it into motor activity for a particular organism. But what consciousness is, is not knowable by science because Science has to use consciousness to try to discover consciousness, and therefore it can never discover itself. It's always a step behind itself. Moreover, as we said before, the ego is definitely, clearly, unimpeachably fictional. It, you cannot deny it. It's an artifact of the system you were raised in. You created a set of self-images and personality strategies and sub-personalities. None of them have any reality. If you are in the ego, you are living a scripted and staged pseudo-existence. That should be clear to everyone in the ego. And if you want to know what free will is, you have to drop the ego. Because the ego has no will to do anything that it isn't programmed to do. Or to know anything that it isn't programmed to know. 
The ego cannot change itself. Because it's a program, only the programmer can change it. But the ego, because it is fictional, has no reality, no essence, with which to be empowered, authorized, and capable of changing itself. And because the ego was originally created by other people, namely parents and family system, the ego remains, even as an adult, dependent upon the introjected image of those superego figures or projected out onto others, which forms the basis for one's likes and one's dislikes, one's hatreds, one's envy, one's every aspect of one's life and one's emotional states are determined by an environment that is simply a field of projections. You don't see other people as they are. You see them as they fit the projection you have unconsciously put on them. And therefore, if there's someone whom you have decided to uh, project as the bad uh, superego parent, uh, you're not going to understand or take in anything that they want to tell you. Even if they're trying to help you, you're going to assume that they're out to get you. And so there are some people here who can't take my help at all in this process because they, all they can do is try to find fault and inconsistencies and contradictions and uh, some form of megalomania or some form of whatever that would disqualify me from being able to offer any useful help to you. And if you're in that state, then it makes it even more difficult uh, to get through to uh, enable someone to uh, move out of the fictional level of consciousness into the real. So these are technical problems that are, uh, are difficult to, uh, to work with. But finally, uh, which I really already mentioned, There are paranormal events that happen, not just synchronicities, but uh, Shaktipat and uh, phenomena that uh, suddenly shock one into recognizing that the ego's frame of reference is illusory, or at least inadequate to be able to comprehend the reality that someone is facing. And so therefore, uh, in order to break through this uh, fictional identity, more and more paranormal kinds of phenomena are happening in the world these days, which include the UFO phenomenon and others that we're studying. But there are also uh, different kinds of uh, paranormal phenomena that will have a direct impact upon the individual that may not be public phenomena, but uh, imperiences that come, uh, which can be in the form of uh, very powerful dreams or very powerful uh, synchronicities or very powerful messages that one gets in a, a non-ordinary way that can open the mind up to uh, levels of consciousness beyond the ego. Those are the, uh, the means that the, the intelligence that transcends the ego uh, is using uh, to, uh, to break the uh, 
the consciousness open to realize its own true nature. I want to read a, uh, a few uh, words of Anamalai Swami, who is one of the uh, uh, foremost disciples of uh, Sri Ramana. He was the main uh, builder of the, uh, all the, the buildings in the ashram and, uh, and walls and uh, uh, efforts to, to keep the, the ashram safe from flooding and various other things. He, he, he worked on many uh, projects. So, and, and then uh, at one point, uh, he, he, uh, he was given a very paranormal realization uh, that put him into a samadhi state that brought his ego to an end and, and he retired. And people came to him for, uh, for instruction and teachings and he gave, he gave them. So I want to read a few things that he said about his own uh, relationship to, uh, to Sri Ramana. Bhagavan watched me very closely in the years that I served him in the ashram. One time I went to the mother's temple where many people were talking about worldly matters. Bhagavan called me back saying, why do you want to go and join that crowd? Don't go to crowded places. Uh, don't talk about worldly things with people. If you move with the crowd, then their vasanas will infect you. How many can relate to that? And how many people let their vasanas be infected by others? It's one of the main <clears throat> obstacles on the path. Bhagavan always encouraged me to live a solitary life and not mix with other people. That was the path he picked for me. Now, yes, other people got different advice that was equally good for them. There are some people who have socially... Uh, important uh, obligations and, uh, and tasks that require interpersonal contact, but he fortunately did not, and so he went faster than most. But while uh, Bhagavan actively discouraged me from socializing, he also discouraged me from sitting quietly and meditating during all the years I was working in the ashram. Uh, if Bhagavan ever saw me sitting with my eyes closed, he would uh, call out to me and give me some work to do. <laughs> he literally didn't let him meditate. That should be some comfort to you, I think. <laughs> On one of these occasions, he actually told me, don't sit and meditate. Just do your work and don't forget that you're the self. You should keep in mind all the time that you are working that you're the self. This is your sadhana, and it's enough. The real sadhana is not to forget the self. It's not sitting quietly with your eyes closed. You're always the self. Just don't forget it. <clears throat> Bhagavan's way does not create a war between the mind and the body. He doesn't make people sit down and fight the mind with closed eyes. Usually, when you sit in meditation, you're struggling to achieve something, even to stay awake a lot of the time, fighting to gain control over the mind. Bhagavan did not advise us to engage in this kind of a fight. 
he told us there's no need to engage in a war against the mind because the mind does not have any real existence. The mind is nothing but a shadow. He advised me to be continuously aware of the self while I did the ordinary things of everyday life, and that was enough. If you understand the self and you realize you are the self, everything will appear to you as your own self. No problems will ever come to you while you have this vision. Because you are all, and all is the self, choices about liking or disliking will not arise. If you put on green-tinted glasses, everything you see will appear to be green. If you adopt the vision of the self, everything that is seen will be the self, and the self alone. So these were Bhagavan's teachings for me. If you want to understand the self, no formal sadhana is required. You are always the self. Be aware of the self while you're working. Convince yourself that you are the self. Not the body, not the mind. And always avoid the thought, I am not the self, or I am the ego. Avoid thoughts that limit you, thoughts that make you believe that you are not the self. I once asked Bhagavan, uh, but you are at the top of the hill. You have reached the summit of spiritual life, whereas I am still at the bottom of the hill. Please help me reach the summit. Bhagavan shook his head and answered, it will be enough if you just give up that thought. <laughs> this thought I'm at the bottom of the hill is nonsense. If you can do this, there'll be no difference between us. It's just your thoughts that are convincing you that I am at the top and you're at the bottom. Just give up this illusion of difference and everything will be fine. Don't adopt attitudes such as those that automatically assume you are limited or inferior in any way. On another occasion, I asked Bhagavan, Nowadays, many people are crossing big oceans by plane in very sh short periods of time. I would like Bhagavan to find us a good device, a jnana airplane, that can speedily transport us all to moksha. And this time Bhagavan replied, look, we're both already in a jnana airplane, but you don't seem to know it. In his answers to me, Bhagavan would never let me fall into the false belief that I was separate or different from the self, or that I was a person with a mind and a body who needed to do something to reach some exalted spiritual state. Whenever I asked him questions that were based on assumptions such as these, he would show me the error that was implicit in the question and gently point me back to the truth, the self. He would never allow me to entertain wrong ideas. So it comes down to that simplicity. You don't need to meditate. Even meditation is based on the illusion that you're a person who has to get to that summit of consciousness. You have to silence your mind. You have to do this or that. No. 
Realize you're not the mind, you're already the self, and that will quiet the mind. It's only the identification with the mind that keeps it busy trying to entertain you. Otherwise, the mind will simply do what it's meant to do, whatever work is required, and then it'll shut up. But even while the mind is active in some work, you remember you're the self. Not by thinking it with the mind, but by recognizing it non-verbally as the witness of the body-mind going through the sadhana, the practice, the karma yoga, but without any identification except with the witness consciousness that is changeless. And in that state, the satchitananda that is the quality of the self will emerge and there need to be no struggle with your ego, with your body, with pains in your body, with pains in your mind or your heart, or with any of the other things that arise as a result of the wrong thought that you're the ego. All of that will fall away by itself. Just know you are the self. Know you are Buddha. Know you are Shiva. Know you are Satchitananda. Know you are the silent presence that is eternal and all will be revealed and perfection will be attained. You are that. You don't have to become that. You don't have to stop becoming something else. There is only the self. There are no other options. Just accept reality. Namaste. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website, we thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.